although we've you know we've won all these awards as, and, and been billed as quite a kind of sexy VR or AR company, at heart we're really sort of quite a boring data or AI analytics company, really um, trying to capture as much unique. Uh, insights into how people perform in training and predict how they're then going to perform in real life um, and, and you know, give the learners unique insights into their performance so that they can better themselves. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EdTech podcast. This episode is supported by UFI VocTech Trust. On this episode of the VocTech podcast, we are talking to the inspirational Dr. Alex Young about the power of immersive tools to enhance learning and improve performance, especially in socially distanced settings. Verti were nominated one of Time's Inventions of 2020, so listen in to find out why. At a time when online learning is getting an online bashing and not always truly representative of the best of what technology and people have to offer, Verti is a refreshingly simple yet ambitious reminder of what is possible. Listen in to hear why snowstorms can be responsible for amazing innovations, why the future of immersive technology may be all about the data and can be used for teacher training, healthcare and retail as just a few examples, how to arm yourself with virtual mentors for leadership development by reading biographies and autobiographies, and why vocational technology is more about co-creation than just about SaaS platform business models. Okay, here we go. So um, this is very exciting because uh, it's the start of 2021 and I'm here with Dr. Alex Young, who is the founder of Verti, for our first recording for this year. Uh, So welcome, Alex. Thank you so much. I feel very special being the first of 2021. (laughs) Hopefully we can can make it a good one to start the year. Absolutely. You're going to set the bar. For those listening in, um, I'll just give a little background about Verti. Um, So Verti is a tool for immersive learning, which uses research into cognitive decision making under pressure and an immersive video platform combined with augmented reality to help professionals prepare for real life high pressure environments, including surgery, sports, emergency response and military training. Um, And last year, Verti helped train NHS staff at the first peak of the COVID crisis and have also worked with schools and universities, including across Bristol, Cambridge and Liverpool med schools uh, here in the UK and also others in the United States. So, Alex, you started out as an NHS trauma surgeon. Um, I wondered if you could give us a sense of your own learning process from uh, school days to uh, those within the medical profession and then finally to setting up 30. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and hopefully this will be entertaining for anyone listening because I'm I'm very weird. So <laughs> my I, I'm I'm originally from um, the northwest of the UK, um, and I've probably got some sort of predisposition to kind of education. So my my mum is a, a now retired school headmistress from a, a sort of all girls school in the northwest of England, and I grew up um, really sort of interested in doing something practical that could help people. Um, which drew me towards a career in medicine. Um, I guess kind of alongside that at school, very interested in sciences, um, very geeky, big sort of video game nerd, but also had this weird 
spin with with sports so I was, I was very very sporty um i loved everything to do with kind of teams and um you know bettering yourself whether it was in sort of sports or, or academia and and so kind of those um interests led me to pursuing a career in in medicine and specifically um orthopedic surgery which i was quite fortunate um in the trauma and orthopedic surgery which is kind of hips and knee replacements and mm. um fixing fractures and emergencies was one of the first things I actually saw when I did sort of medical work experience um, and, and kind of that ability to see a problem via an x-ray, um, whether it's a broken bone or arthritis of the hip, and then be able to do something practical with a team like you do in surgery to immediately you know, benefit a patient's mobility or their um, work-life balance, what, whatever it is, just really, really sort of spoke to me. So ended up going to Bristol Med School uh, to do that. And then um, as well as sort of having an interest in sports and, and academia, the other side of my my family, my, my dad's side, my great grandfather was uh, a sort of a shipping magnet um, mm. back in sort of the, the 1920s, 30s, um, and ended up being kind of the Lord Mayor of Newcastle. Um, so I've probably also got some entrepreneurial DNA there, which kind of came out in uh, med school when I set up um, a couple of um, education businesses, some that did sort of in-person training for doctors and nurses and, and organized events and things like that. And then a subsequent one, which did digital um, teaching and training around um, exams for, for doctors and nurses, because um, as, as you might know, doctors and nurses have to sit a ton of exams, which are super expensive, all the way from kind of undergrad to, you know, well into their postgrad career. Um, and, and then, you know, at, at that stage, I also uh, pursued a kind of master's in uh, surgical teaching and education um, and, and did some other kind of quite geeky things to, to sort of satiate my interest in education and then um, didn't really ever envisage leaving healthcare, I suppose. Um, the businesses I set up all Touchwood did did very well, um, but they were always kind of side hustles and, and I sort of um, coded them or uh, built them around my NHS training, um, literally being a bit like a kind of caricature of an entrepreneur. So coming back from my night shifts and, uh, you know, doing some pretty terrible coding skills or, <laughs> um, you know, teaching myself how to do sales and things like that. Um, but with no real desire to leave medicine and until um, around about kind of, you know, three years or so ago. And I'd, I'd got to near the end of my orthopedic training, um, very lucky to train in the Bristol region, um, which had kind of, I think, accelerated where I was at. Um, and I could do sort of a lot of the uh, what's called indicative or, or kind of required operations that, that you're meant to do for your sort of grade of your um, postgrad training. Um, and then um, went over to the US to do a fellowship in um, the Hospital for Special Surgery uh, in New York and ended up getting stuck in a snowstorm um, in Manhattan <laughs> and basically trapped in a hotel for 48 hours that gave me an opportunity to kind of reflect on, um, you know, where I wanted to be going and what I wanted to be doing and, and kind of had this idea for Verti um, really with the kind of mission and focus, even at that stage to think, you know, how can we actually scale in-person face-to-face experiential learning um, and how can we make it more data-driven? Um, so, Again, going back to the things that always interested me, like you know, teamwork skills, soft skills, leadership skills that drive a lot of organizations, not just in, in healthcare, but but in um, you know any type of, of corporate setting forwards. 
Um, the way that I sort of received that training in, in uh, medicine was always either using actors and role play um, or just basically learning on the job, learning from different uh, doctors or nurses or people I kind of encountered serendipitously. And the problem with that was it was serendipitous. There was a lot of variability both in the training delivery and in the feedback that myself and my peers received. Um, and, and if you think about um, sort of human factors or soft skills or non-technical skills or whatever you want to call them, like communication, especially in healthcare, that's a massive um, mm. factor that plays to patient experience. So um, around about you know, 70% of complaints against hospitals or doctors or nurses can be attributed to some form of poor communication in the patient's journey. Uh, but but it's you know there's no way to actually predict if someone is uh, you know a really good communicator or a poor communicator other than role play and kind of subjective feedback. Um, so you know if if we were doing a kind of communications uh, session, Sophie, it might be that that we are um, practicing with an actor and, and there's a a third person um, who's observing us and saying, yeah, I think you know your eye contact's good or the way you explained that diagnosis or the way you had that difficult conversation with an employee was okay, maybe do this next time. And it's not very data-driven. I remember you're taking me back to doing um, difficult conversations training or something like that, where we had an actor yeah. uh, come in and yeah, it takes some time out of your day and you, you can't really forget the fact that you're in a sort of made up situation, I suppose. Exactly right. And and for organisations, it's incredibly expensive as well. So if you think, um, you know, in the healthcare setting or for things like sales training or customer support training and things like retail, um, you've got to actually, you know, find actors or role players or, or um, you know, spend money on an external organisation who provide those. And then you're kind of relying on the kind of curriculum and the teaching methodology behind that. Um, and and as you mentioned, you're also kind of pulling your employees off their, their actual mm. jobs. So you're losing quite a lot through productivity as well. And you're not really collecting any data. And um, those tend to be like episodic encounters, i.e. you might have like one of those a year or once a month. Yeah. And then people's skills kind of degrade. Around that point, what we set out to do with Verti was to create this um, cloud-based system um and and i've got to say you know at the time although we you know we've won all these awards as, and, and been billed as quite a kind of sexy vr or ar company at heart we're really sort of quite a boring data or ai analytics company really um trying to capture as much unique uh insights into how people perform in training and predict how they're then going to perform in real life um and and you know give the learners unique insights into their performance so that they can better themselves and also give their kind of trainers or educators insights as well. So we can kind of pop people into, um, as you mentioned, video-based uh, training, which might be, again, simulating kind of role-play experiences or simulating an operation um, or the human factors of um, you know, being involved in a team. Or we can put them into these kind of computer-generated environments with um, artificial intelligently kind of controlled avatars that you can communicate with, you can practice on them safely and repetitively, um, all really to kind of reduce that variability in training and, and standardize things for the future. Um, and, and really, you know, I think that's the that's the bottom line of what we set out to do. We, we really want to transform how the workforce of, of the future and, and now, um, you know, prepare and train because we feel that, you know, people 
in, in any organization are the most important thing. Um, and if we can improve human performance, as we say, we can have a massive impact um, on, on companies, on economies and, and on um, you know, patient care and healthcare or uh, the end kind of consumers experience in, in sort of retail or corporates. You know, in, in my introduction, I mentioned that uh, Verti helps sort of train NHS staff during the uh, COVID crisis last year, which is obviously ongoing. Could you talk to our listeners a little bit about, you know, how that came about and, you know, what you developed and the kind of outcomes of that as well? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's it's, it's interesting the start to 2021 is uh, you, you just sort of dropped in two kind of crazy things that have happened already. And it's only sort of whatever it is, week two in January. So, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Any, anything really where it's kind of uh, an infrequent event and we hope that that event at you know the capitol building will be infrequent um but but very very hazardous they're the type of things we're trying to you know repetitively teach people um that they perhaps couldn't prepare for normally um but yeah i mean i think reflecting back on 2020 we've been very kind of grateful and humbled that we've been able to sort of um help a lot of the people that, that we work with in healthcare um a- around this kind of black swan event and the um the coronavirus pandemic um, so yeah, interestingly, kind of this time last year, um, I was out in uh, Los Angeles um, with uh, one of our customers, Cedar Sinai uh, Hospital, who we were just kind of um, rolling out some some further training modules with, um, and that was actually going to be around um, new doctor and nurse induction orientation training, where it was normally sort of done in person and, and was very expensive, and, and we were kind of reducing the time and cost of that um, and the the kind of knowledge retention for for cedars. Um, but but then suddenly, you know, California went into lockdown, and people were no longer able to come into uh, what's called the simulation centers in healthcare. So um, you know, if, if anyone's not familiar with with training in healthcare, it's either done. Um, in the postgraduate setting in these specific buildings called simulation centers, which often have kind of uh, mock-ups of um, operating theaters or patient wards. And, and sometimes these mannequins or these actors, um, and you've got these fantastic simulation staff who are very creative and, and basically kind of, you know, mock up these, these scenarios and simulations and make them as realistic as possible. Um, however, that was then very, very challenging. And um, specifically around COVID-19 in healthcare, you probably saw and are seeing, certainly at the moment in the UK, there are lots of new skills that people have to take on that are outside their normal kind of working practices. So whether that is um, having to just put on protective equipment and, and understanding what type of protective equipment is um, appropriate for different types of patients, um, or whether it is, um, you know, the practical use of things like ventilators for staff who um, might not use them every single day. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, even at the moment, as, as vaccines are rolling out, I actually had a, a conversation with um, uh, an education lead this morning in an NHS trust where she was telling me the last time she sort of vaccinated people was sort of 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so she was now having to kind of study up on how to do mm. intramuscular injections and things like that. So we, we were then able to kind of, um, take a lot of uh, that in-person training, digitize it and, and quickly roll it out to um, frontline healthcare workers, um, mocking up these sort of simulations uh, that people could access on demand and that um, the training staff could then track and, and look at who had done it, um, what their weaknesses were and, and how you know, much of the workforce was, was basically kind of upskilled around that. And um, 
that that then led us back in the UK um, to picking up an, an award through um, something called NHSX, which is the NHS's innovation arm, um, where we looked at translating that into helping carers, um, people who were um, in the in the kind of care side of, of patient care, um, helping them to understand how to put on protective equipment. And um, and yeah, I mean, we we were super humble to be able to assist with that. Um, we did a little bit of research around that, that NHSX project, which basically showed that using our system helped um, improve knowledge retention around protective equipment use by upwards of kind of 200%, which was, which was awesome. Um, and, and we did that very, very quickly, actually. Um, and then probably the coolest thing or one of the cool things that happened to me last year was um, completely out of the blue um, because someone, I think, saw that story. We ended up getting featured on, on the NASDAQ tower in Times Square, um, even though no one was there to, to actually see it in person because everyone's locked down. A but um, we've got a nice picture of it. Yeah, bittersweet. Uh, yeah, I, I saw the image. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a couple of questions. So one is in my previous life, uh, I ran in 2008 an event called the Mobile Healthcare Industry Summit. And this was sort of around the early days of, I suppose, digital healthcare and, you know, smart pills and health uh, databases and, and, and this kind of thing. And it, it strikes me now that, um, you, you know, recently um, our nine-month-old, we had a, had a sort of viral rash and we were a bit concerned whether um, this would be the the dreaded COVID. So we had a test um, and we also had a, a video call with our local doctors. And it struck me that, you know, the local doctors were were using a, a pretty um, generic consumer piece of video conferencing uh, kit. And it made me think, you know, where you previously had the, the promise of a, a niche industry sector um, intersecting with digital, um, you know, the reality is, is people pick up and, and use tools which are freely available, hopefully secure. Um, so I wondered what your thoughts were on that and, and, and kind of uh, what's needed to achieve scale for some of these um, sort of solutions and technologies and whether it's about having a, a sort of niche sector industry or whether it's actually just about technology being used in in sort of in ways that are practical yeah i, I mean it's it's a fantastic question sophie i mean um obviously with my kind of geek entrepreneur hat on i, I keep kind of you know interested in everything else that's going on within healthcare outside of kind of education as well and i think um certainly during the you know from, from kind of probably march of last year with the coronavirus lockdown um in the uk and internationally a lot of organizations that traditionally might have been a little bit slow moving, um, like healthcare organizations mm. in particular, um, because, and they're slow moving um, because they've got to make sure that things, as you say, are secure and um, they're benefiting patients and technology is, is not kind of delaying or slowing down sort of frontline clinicians in what they do. So I, I was really interested in seeing a couple of reports from the NHS around the current um, adoption of things like telemedicine services, mm -hmm. which um, I was absolutely astounded by, were, were so low. Um, and, and I was looking at, you know, some companies that had raised, uh, you know, hundreds of millions in some cases of funding, and, and they only had around about kind of 20 NHS contracts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think 
I think that that's very much a kind of implementation and, and winning people over problem. Um, and, and there's a, you know there's a wider conversation, I suppose, there around um, any type of technology um, in, in any you know being used by any organisation that there needs to be not only uh, a proven use case, a proven benefit, um, but you have got to kind of educate um, the, the industry and the sector. Um, and, and one of the ways you do that is through you know, showing them data, show, showing return on investment. Um, but, but you know, specifically to, to answer your question, I, my, my personal opinion on this is um, it's all around the people um, w- within these organisations. So um, we've been very, very fortunate to work with just some really, really innovative um, customers from a, from a very, very early stage, whether that's in the NHS, whether it's in the US in healthcare, um, whether it's in, in you know, uh, bigger kind of private corporate organisations. Um, really with a focus on how how we can sort of help them meet their goals and, and improve their their training um the the specific point about you know telemedicine actually um and you know again specifically the the case you mentioned there with with a, a rash on a um a young child i think the other bit we've got to remember is it's it's very um you know stressful as as i'm sure you'll attest for parents and and you know for any patients when they're trying to get seen by a doctor or a nurse um in the current climate over telehealth um because you don't have that rapport with people you you can't sort of go in and and fully get checked out and there is an education piece to be done there um for the clinicians to make sure that you know their soft skills um, are as good as they can be when they're delivered remotely via you know telemedicine um and also probably a piece around patient education um, so that people can be sort of, you know, empowered to um, understand what the limitations of telemedicine are and understand, you know, when they should be going into an emergency department and, and when they should be, you know, seeing a GP. So I, th- I think there's there's just a, a huge amount that still needs to be done around the education of both providers, patients and, and everyone involved in that kind of pathway. Mm-hmm. Um but but I think I'm going to be very interested to see what sort of sticks around after coronavirus um, and then things start getting back to normal, because um, I would hope that people have seen the benefit of things like telehealth um, in, in augmenting their existing practice. I, I don't think it should ever completely replace in-person, face-to-face, certainly examination, because it can't. And, and, and that kind of you know human piece of of seeing a patient, understanding their needs, and, and getting a full three hundred and sixty opinion before you make your diagnosis. But I think for certain things, it can help to unbottle some of the bottlenecks within um, the healthcare system and can save money. Um, and and I hope that that you know um, the NHS and other people kind of look at that in detail, as I'm sure they are. Look at the financial savings and look at, you know, how it's been implemented and, and you know, take that forward and continue it on after we get back to normal. Absolutely. And I mean, my experience of, of that on two occasions was, you know, it was really convenient. Um, the soft skills of the GP in question were absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it just, you know, improved our confidence in the situation without us having to make a trip to the GP clinic. You know, that that kind of comment also made me think about um, the technologies you're using at Bertie as well. So I know, um, you know, there's a whole spectrum in immersive technology, whether that's augmented reality up to um, virtual reality. Um, what What's kind of your thinking around the use of technologies for sort of simulated learning? And I suppose that's in the context of over time, 
the technology of virtual reality, the cost of it is coming down. Um, and this year, you know, you've got some interesting things potentially on the horizon. So, you know, whether Apple releases some new technology or devices around immersive. Um, I just, yeah, wondered with your with your geeky hat back on, uh, what you're seeing in that space and, and, and kind of where you find the, the tools useful in terms of access to training um, and then the immersive element of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think just just kind of st- taking a step back before I, I get kind of too excited with what's on the horizon um, and, and our sort of tech team who are all based in Bristol are all games developers and are fantastic. And, and there's a ton of stuff we've got sort of in our pipeline. But um, it, I mean, your, your question just kind of actually reminds me of a fantastic interview um, that um, Jeff Bezos did um, at the at the beginning of kind of um, Amazon's uh, you know career. I think it was sort of after they did their seed round or Series A. And he's uh, an interviewer sort of asked him and, and said, you know, isn't isn't Amazon just a fantastic, um, you know, online shopping place hmm. uh, that uses the Internet? And isn't it a great use of the Internet? Um, and, and he, you know, Bezos sort of just immediately replies, Internet, from Internet, um, I think is his <laughs> comment or something to that effect. Um, and he says, actually, you know, we're a distribution business. So what if you look at what Amazon has done? Um, it's actually the setup of these distribution centers uh, doing next day delivery, mm. which is the bit that's completely transformed to the point where, you know, ironically, during coronavirus, the bit that people went crazy about was, you know, I can't buy any gym kit um, online because it's sold out or, you know, next day delivery is not possible because of of some of the precautions. And And that's kind of, I guess, you know, how we approach what we're doing. We're very kind of or, or much more, I should say, you know, outcomes focused and thinking about how we can help our customers than than trying to you know push forward a specific type of technology so um whenever we start an engagement or partnership with it with a customer we always think you know okay what are you trying to achieve what are your bottlenecks within your um within the education and training component of your organization um and and how can we best help and actually you know can we help because um what we provide isn't you know panacea that's going to completely um you know, change a, an organization every single time. Um, we know exactly where it works and where it's most useful. Um, so we do a kind of a lot of like, offline sort of strategy with with um, our customers before we even do anything. Um, that being said, the, the the really interesting things that we see kind of on the horizon at the moment are, and getting back to sort of our, our mission, which is to sort of make experiential education affordable and accessible for everyone, um, I think just that ability to scale in-person training and, and collect unique data that, that even um, when face-to-face training is done, mm. isn't collected, mm-hmm. is just so powerful. So, you know, we're continuously, uh, you know, R&Ding lots and lots of uses around um, machine learning, specifically kind of computer vision analysis of, of video-based content that we work with. So pulling out things like um, if we've got sort of, you know, similar pieces of content across multiple different organizations we can look at um how you know how much variation there is between them in a really kind of objective way um analyzing things like um team communication using natural language processing um and and then actually analyzing um weaknesses on an individual level um so if someone's you know particularly poor at breaking bad news or or um you know their communication style is is perhaps a little bit abrupt um, looking at how we can sort of pull that out. Um, I think on the 
uh, you know, the, the VR and AR side is, is, is super, super interesting. Um, the bits, again, we tend to get most excited on with that actually, again, is, is um, the, the sort of how we can pull out more analytics from those platforms. So mm. a lot of the newer headsets um, in VR and AR, uh, we look at things like eye tracking and, and how accurate the, um, the hand and uh, sort of biometric data is that we can collect and, and add into our system. Um, and I, I think on that sort of VR side, we, um, we're going to see a kind of convergence across virtual augmented reality. So, it, you know, I, I think if you look at what sort of Facebook are doing with um, the Oculus headsets, and um, they, they've just actually posted a, a blog article over the Christmas period talking about what they're doing over the next kind of 12 months, which very much talks about integrating augmented reality into new headsets and um, how they can do things like capturing um, facial movements and, and projecting that onto avatars in virtual spaces. Um, I, I, th- I think that's going to be really, really exciting and interesting um, because I think one of the things with VR in particular that's a limitation at present is um, not every single person obviously has a VR headset. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you do go into a, um, a virtual environment, the, the element of presence can be limited because of the quality of the the virtual environment or because the um you know the the people that you're trying to communicate with in a sort of multiplayer or social setting um are are sort of generic avatars rather than being very realistic humans so i i I think the you know the things we're most excited about are are certainly the the ai components around the data analysis um but but also looking at how we can make learning really fun um and, and exciting for as many people as possible that's fantastic. And um, one of the questions I had was around, you know, what Bertie's goals are going forward. So obviously he had a tremendous end to 2020 with, um, you know, Time magazine picking Bertie out as one of the best inventions of 2020. Um, what What's kind of your focus for 2021? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're, you know, we're continuously kind of grateful for all the um, the kind of traction and stuff we've had in, in quite a short space of time. So we're, we're really just a sort of two-year-old company. We, we launched um, really our, our main product only around about kind of 18 months ago or so. Um, and, and we scaled up very, very quickly with a, uh, you know, a, a team which, which grew from kind of um, four people to um, 24 people in a really short space of time. Um, so I, I guess you know for us it's about how we can help as many people as possible um, in in as fast a time as possible really and, and hit our mission of um, improving human performance um, in, in every kind of workplace setting. Um, specifically, you know for for twenty twenty one, we're we're going to be kind of like doubling or trebling our team size, which is going to be quite exciting and also slightly scary to make sure we we maintain our kind of company culture and, and yeah. um, you know continue to help our customers as much as possible. Um, we are bringing some new products uh, to market and and optimizing and tweaking our existing um, systems. So again, you know we're, we're collecting as much unique data and really helping to solve problems for our customers as as best we can. Um, and, and then, I mean, we as a company are, are probably a little bit weird in that, um, you know, from day one, we've always sort of optimized for, I suppose, the, the US market. Um, so although we are based in, in Bristol in the UK, that's where our tech team are and our kind of um, EMEA head offices, we've also got offices in, in Houston and California in the US. Um, and so really, we're looking to, to continue to scale into the United States um, as well as internationally. So we're, we're just doing a couple of really exciting partnerships um, 
which uh, again sort of you know pushes into um, UAE and um, APAC and things like that as well. So really, kind of scaling up is our, our main focus, as well as um, bringing some new, really exciting products to market. And that's I remember my my previous question now um, talking about partnerships. So I, I was interested to know where you know if you if you have someone using Verti, they become of a become aware of a, a weakness in their own skill set. So. Uh, like we were talking about before, perhaps it's that delivery of uh, bad news, um, communication skills. Um, does Verti also um, deliver the actual follow-on content um, or do you partner with other people to, you know, pull together a sort of training plan therein afterwards as well? Yeah, really, really great question. So, um, I mean, Right back at the beginning of, of when um, I founded the company, um, I obviously, um, as every good entrepreneur should do, is, is obviously you know, speak to your kind of customers, make sure you're actually solving a problem for them. And, and one of the key things that we kind of figured out was um, people's training needs in, in every single organization, whether it's in healthcare or outside, it is completely unique. And, and people actually want ownership um, mm-hmm. of how they deliver training. And, and I think you know, in, in any sector, whether it's higher education, um, whether it's schools or colleges, you know, a VOCTEC type training um, or, uh, you know, medical training as, as, as we are doing, um, the people who deliver that training are often incredibly creative um, and, and are very focused on, on good learning pedagogy and, and, and how people learn. So um, the way that we sort of engage with people is we, uh, outside of the tech, have you know, learning development experts, strategy experts, where we sit down with those folks and we say, okay, what are you looking to achieve? What's what's offers good return on investment for you? Um, and then our, our tech system uh, actually has kind of creation um, facilities built into it. So um, our customers can actually create and manage their own content in addition to any uh, generic off-the-shelf content that we have. Um, and, and that's really exciting because it often, you know, it continues to, to kind of blow my mind just how creative um, a lot of the trainers and educators are. And um, it's really exciting to be able to kind of facilitate that through a platform like we've built. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's so much kind of going on on our platform. I, I don't know half of probably what's going on outside of our product team. Um, but, you know, some of the things that our customers are creating are, are just absolutely amazing. So, um, I mean, although healthcare is very much our sort of primary market at the moment uh, we do do quite a bit of work outside as well so just as an example we had um, a, a couple of kind of secondary schools in the UK approach us around different aspects and we said well okay you know we're, we're mainly kind of focused on healthcare but we're, we're very happy to kind of onboard you um, and, and get some kind of pilot data and test data and see what you know how we can help and if we can help um, and, and the use cases there were really interesting. So that was around kind of actually teacher training um, where teachers would normally kind of sit in in a classroom and observe classes or, um, you know, they might actually only find difficult students or, um, you know, people being rude or aggressive to them when they start on their first day. So, again, it kind of fitted in with our ethos of how can we scale and, and repetitively educate people around infrequent hazardous events. So that was really cool and we, we hadn't really thought about doing that and that's now kind of scaled up um and th- that kind of way of of i suppose not just selling like a sort of SaaS piece of technology but actually partnering with our customers and, and letting them take ownership of that content um has has proved really really powerful so we work with 
um, both customers uh, to help them create content, um, but also kind of third parties who might be delivering existing in-person training to organizations um, who who want to kind of either you know differentiate their revenue streams um, or you know just meet the the impossibility of delivering in-person training in the current environment um, and we can kind of switch that over and put it on and you know w- one of the things actually that I saw has launched this week from one of those third parties is a just awesome awesome um, uh, piece of kind of mindfulness training content actually um, which was delivered by a former RAF helicopter pilot um, where it's about teaching high-performing individuals in in the corporate or healthcare setting um, how to be mindful how to deal with kind of stress and resilience um, and that's delivered again through the platform just with content that's been created by them so super scalable super exciting um, on that partnership side um, on the note of books, so just as we wrap up, um, I like to ask all of our podcast guests if there's anything they have read or, you know, any projects or people that, you know, have inspired your way of thinking that you'd like to share, either around what you do or just personal interests as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I, I mean, where to start with this? And so I'm, I'm a massive reader, basically. So I, I try and get through a, a couple of books a month if I can. Um, I mean, for me, um, I think certainly over the Christmas period, um, one of the, uh, you know, the key books that I I sort of picked up um, was um, one called The Lombardi Rules, which um, is is actually one of our kind of required reading, basically, at Mm. Verti. So um, that's actually for Vince Lombardi is is the the kind of head coach of of the NFL team, the Green Bay Packers from, um, you know, their kind of heyday. Um, Just a fantastic uh, you know, take on on how um, team members and teams should kind of approach things, and and it's not just about kind of sports. It's, it's a really quick, accessible book which just gives some really good lessons on on how you should deal with kind of adversity or uh, you know how you should aim for things in in your day to day life. So that's something that I will always kind of pick up and go back to. Um, I think you know other things that I kind of go to um, on a on a kind of like regular basis. Um, you know things like. Uh, Sam Walton's Made in America. So Sam Walton is um, the the founder of Walmart um, in the US. And so I try and mix up kind of, I guess, practical practical business books with uh, kind of biographical type things. So that's that's quite a chunky book. I think it's about eight 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 hundred to a thousand pages with very small text. Um, but it's really interesting. So it's the Walmart model really of getting value for your money. So you have to have the most. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Exactly right. It's um, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. And I'd I'd highly recommend anyone, uh, you know, if you're an avid reader, mix things up between kind of autobiographies to to kind of learn from others as kind of virtual mentors almost, as as well as the kind of more practical, businessy books. Um, and then yeah, on the on the kind of geeky side, um, after. Um, I, I, I'm trying to get back into um, more kind of pleasurable or kind of fiction reading as well. So um, I've just started reading The Expanse um, after seeing some of the TV show on Amazon Prime, um, which is a, a pretty awesome sort of sci-fi episodic um, book series, uh, which is identical to the um, the TV show and is 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 uh, quite an enjoyable read as well. Uh, so I'm not just reading business books. Fantastic. Yes, I've just start, I've just picked up. Um... The Testaments, which is the follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale, which last night I was kind of like, do I watch the news, which seems quite dystopian, or read this dystopian novel, which uh, was 
quite a strange <laughs> situation to be in. But um, well, that's absolutely fantastic. It's always good to um, to share some third books out. Um, Alex, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really fascinating to get to know what you're up to. And hopefully everyone listening in will um, have a think about you know, how they may be able to um, work alongside the Bertie mission. Yeah, it's a, it's a great mission to be involved with. And we wish you very well for the rest of 2021. No, thank you so much. Um, and, and likewise, hopefully 20, 2021 gets back to normal as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. That would be very good. Thanks, Sophie. Really appreciate it. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much again to Alex for all of his book recommendations and thoughts on keeping things simple when it comes to the mission of Tech for Good. Don't forget if you want to bring uh, an idea to fruition in the area of skills development supported through technology, you can check out UFI Voctech Trust Seed Fund, which aims to create a pipeline of new digital vocational learning solutions by supporting innovative and creative projects at an early stage of development. Uh, the Voctech Seed Awards grant funding of between 15000 and £50,000 for projects of between 3 and 12 months duration. Funding is to support the development of early stage ideas, small scale testing, proof of concept work and the development of strategies to scale once UFI funding has ended. And the UFI team say they can support ideas for new tech, new markets, new communities of learners um, with the emphasis there obviously being on new and that they are okay with risk. If that sounds like something you're interested in, head over to the UFI website during uh, January 2021 at ufi.co.uk forward slash funding to check out all the deadlines and other details. To get you inspired, here's Dr. Alex Young talking about his earlier project and UFI collaboration, which was called Tripping the Thames, which tested out some of their earlier training technologies across the transport sector. We, we got sort of invited to kind of participate in a uh, UFI project um, that had been uh, set up and identified um, by uh, a sort of a, a teaching or, or training strategist who was looking particularly at um, how you can more quickly and more effectively um, train river masters um, and uh, people who kind of uh, moor and, and uh, sail boats up and down the Thames kind of commercially. You know, I, I, I had no clue about sort of, you know, the, the rules or regulations around the Thames. I had no clue about how people learnt um, to... Um, uh, you know, become kind of harbour masters or, or uh, you know, sailboats around the Thames. And it's it was really, really interesting process, actually. So um, we got invited by um, uh, the, the team at UFI to do this project, which, which was fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, j just sort of long story short, there's um, a heck of a lot of kind of boating accidents on the river hmm. um, and, and rivers, I should say, kind of internationally. And the way that people are trained typically is... Um, they get given basically um, what are kind of like flashcards or maps uh, with sort of like little pictures attached to them. So pictures of the bridges, pictures of um, the different kind of curvatures of the river um, and, and things like this. And, and in some cases, not even videos. So a little bit like, uh, you know, London cabbie learning like the knowledge, they get sort of sent this out. They've just got to sit down and learn it or actually go out physically on a boat and sort of practice remembering things and thinking, OK, this is the breach where the breach is kind of the, the, 
portion of the river. Um, and this is how effective our training was. I can now remember all this stuff that <laughs> I didn't have a clue about. Yeah. Um, so it was really interesting because um, what they would then do is go into an exam, which was an in-person assessment. Um, and if they didn't pass it, they had to reset it, repay for it, or, or you know, they couldn't get their kind of commercial license to um, go, go up and down the Thames. So what we did was we took a, a 360 video camera out um, luckily on a, on a very sunny day. So it's actually quite, quite fun and exciting uh, to be on it. Um, recorded probably, I think, almost three quarters of the entirety of the Thames, going through kind of each of the different bridges, looking at the landmarks and things like that, made that kind of interactive with our platform, um, both in um, a sort of virtual reality setting, but also augmented reality so you had a kind of just-in-time training element when you were actually on a boat mm. um, and, and then did a kind of mini study looking at um, a kind of cohort of learners who use the traditional kind of um, I suppose text or image-based learning and then those that were sort of immersed in in a simulated environment um, and again the kind of knowledge retention the pass marks and the engagement for the learners using our type of system um, was was you know significantly better um, and, and that was really cool because again it kind of fitted into you know projects we take on where it's it's quite a sort of antiquated way of learning something either practical but something that that is infrequent potentially hazardous where we know we can offer a lot of return on investment for um, and it was really sort of getting a lot of that that initial data um, and, and so yeah I mean things like you know transport um, uh, we, we've done a little bit of work with kind of um, uh, people like sort of transport for London and recorded some things in, uh, you know, on the tube before, before lockdown around, um, training for, um, you know, security teams down on, on the tube and things like that. So re really, really interesting stuff. And, um, that was a really fun project, which we're, we're just actually in the process of kind of picking back up, um, as, uh, as one of our kind of key things for 2021. That's, that's very cool. What a cool job to be able to uh, go up and down the Thames doing recordings and, and turning it into something so useful as well. Yes, yeah, it's, it's super fun. I mean, I've got to say, I don't, I, I've never been all the way um, <laughs> along the Thames. And it's, uh, it's, it, was even, it was actually like really, really fun. And I've, I, as someone who's been around London, just an absolute turn. Um, it, was, it was very interesting. Whenever I now go over a bridge that crosses the river, <laughs> Um, I've had some weird thing embedded in me where I'm like, okay, this is the the King's Reach breach um, of the river, and and I'd I'd only sort of looked through the training a couple of times. So hopefully for the you know the harbour masters who who went through that training, it's it's embedded and, and stuck with them um, up till now as well. Yeah, and if anyone else is listening, um, definitely recommend the Peter Ackroyd book on on the Thames. Really fascinating as well. So a little aside there. Now, that really is it for this week. So stay safe, everyone, and check back in soon for our next episode on the podcast on student recruitment and admissions. Bye-bye. <laughs>